The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome back my guest from last week, Mr. Mark Winnie. He is the co-founder of a number of food and agriculture policy groups, including the National Community Food Security Coalition. He was a member of the United States delegation to the 2000 World Conference on Food Security in Rome. He is a 2001 recipient of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary's Plow Honor Award. From 2002 until 2004, Mark was a Food and Society Policy Fellow. He currently writes, speaks, and consults extensively on community food system topics, including hunger and food insecurity, local and regional agriculture, community food assessment, and food policy. And since 2013, Mark has served as a senior advisor at the prestigious John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, where he works on local and state food policy. He is also a prolific writer, extensively published, and we are focusing on his latest book titled Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat. You can also read about his philosophy and good work at www.markwinnie.com. He is based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Welcome back, Mark. Well, thanks for having me back, Melinda. Well, we only got to touch a tiny little bit of your book, and I feel like it is such an important piece of literature that we should take another second dive. So just to remind our listeners, last week we spoke about the economic advantages of regenerating local food systems that used to exist in small-town USA. We also talked about how food can actually be an economic driver to towns that have lost their economic souls for whatever reason. And you touch on different towns that have lost industry. Like last week, we talked about Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the steel industry left, and then boom, you've got thousands of people unemployed and how food can come back in and rev up the economy again. So I wanted to just have us go back and talk about something that we didn't define, and that is we talk about food systems. What is a food system? Well, a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure that out and define it, and it certainly is a a good topic for academics who love to take those things and take them apart and put them back together again several times. But I think that we have to think about the food system as that entire process. I do think of it as a process that starts with the seed or the soil or even things that are more elemental than that and takes us all the way through from the production to the harvesting, the processing, the distribution, the preparation, and of course the consumption. And I think more recently we've added into that the use of waste and the uh, realization that we waste an extraordinary amount of food as well. So all those things taken into account. But Beyond that, I I like to consider the food system as all the different people and stakeholders in the way that we get food and process food and consume food and learn about food. So 
when you think about the food system, and you also have to start thinking about the economic impact because of all the people in that system who make some kind of living or participate in some way in all of those activities that bring us our food. And I think the other part of a food system is how food connects to our health, and food is medicine, and food has been the source, unfortunately, of a lot of ill health across this country when it comes to obesity levels and diabetes. How does food connect to the environment? climate change, the fact that so much of our global warming and carbon emissions are associated with agricultural production, to how food just simply contributes to and builds community. So, you know, when we think about a food system, we have to take all those things into account, mm-hmm. um, which is good, I think. I think it's it can be complicated, but it can be a very rich territory to explore. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've been in meetings where you've got this big blackboard in front of you and you start seeing all the different ways food touches our lives. And as you said, it's it's the seed, it's the production, it's the waste component. And we've got this narrative in our society that, you know, we have to keep getting bigger, we have to keep producing. And I did want to touch on this idea of scale because as you visited these different towns where the food culture is coming back to life and regenerating communities, I'm sure that many of those communities struggle with, where do we go in terms of scale? Do we get bigger? Or is it okay to stay smaller and stay within a smaller region? Tell me about your experiences with scale. I think everybody was interested in getting bigger than they are, and they were all confronting the challenges of how to get bigger. And also, I think, unfortunately, there was concern that, gosh, we can't get bigger, but can we even hold our own? That was a concern. The number of farmers, for instance, younger farmers, have not kept pace with the decline in farmers, and the, meaning the people getting older and leaving farming. So that clearly was a challenge to achieving scale. But I think that when they began to think a little bit more about the food system itself, well, it's more than just growing food. And I try to emphasize that point. So when we talk about scale, I think of it in terms of, wow, we have all these coffee shops. We have all these brew pubs. We have these farm-to-table restaurants. We have farm-to-school programs etc., etc., all of which are reaching substantial numbers across the country. And if you collect all those in a given community, you have a scale, I think, in terms of a food system. It may not be the kind of your ability to source a substantial amount of food from, let's say, a 50-mile radius is challenging at best, but at least you have all these components. And I think what happens in the process of doing that is the educational value. People begin to understand that there are all these dots in a food system and ones that can be connected. So I guess you'd have to say, you know, there's definitely major challenges when it comes to scaling up in terms of particularly on the production side, but the diversity of locally owned businesses and diversity and representation of a much wider food system is uh, rather remarkable. And I think that that is a very bright sign with respect to community food activity. Mm -hmm. And just to remind our audience, the seven cities are Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, 
Alexandria, Louisiana, Boise, Idaho, Sitka, Alaska, Youngstown, Ohio, Jacksonville, Florida, and Portland, Maine. And we touched on several of these cities last week, and I want to dive into Youngstown, Ohio for a moment for a number of reasons. One, about what you just said about the diversity, where there's a young couple and they realize there are enough people growing produce to meet our needs right now for our markets. What's missing? And they decided to do mushrooms. So I think that part of the success, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my view after reading this book is that part of the success of these communities is the ability of people to see what's missing and what's already there and to complement or fill the gaps. Would you agree? Oh, yes. I think you know, that's been one mistake I've seen time and time again of, say, we want a farmer's market. We want to do more local. Well, I think we've all had experiences where we show up at the farmer's market going back five or ten years, and, and boy, you sure got a lot of zucchini, but you right. don't have much else. Right. And I think the great thing about younger farmers is that they are so market conscious. So they're looking at diversity. You know, they're not going to just be growing the same tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuce that everybody else is growing. In the case of Youngstown, as you brought up, there were a couple of young farmers, husband-wife team, that decided to jump in with mushrooms. And I was sort of looking for their names, and I can't find them at the moment, but that was part of the story, that they and others were willing to come up with something else. They wanted to be farmers, but they knew they weren't going to get the return that they wanted. They weren't going to have the the business success just by being another produce farmer. They had to differentiate themselves. And so that kind of thoughtfulness, that kind of market targeting and segmentation, I think, are also are something that you're finding more commonly now, particularly among younger farmers. You know, there was, in the, I think, the one unique aspect of the Youngstown area, which is in the Mahoning Valley of Ohio, is that there is actually a large supply of locally grown food, much larger than the population is able to absorb. It's sort of a unique aspect, but farmers still were struggling to find markets. So there was something called the Lake to River Co-op, which is made up primarily of farmers who are working together to produce a variety of food, some of which is going into food hubs, some of which is finding its way into schools, particularly some colleges and universities, not as much into Youngstown per se as they would like, but they are trying to figure out how to break into different markets. But the idea of farmers working together, cooperating in, say, a food hub kind of structure was also something that was evident and becoming more common. Exactly. And just to give them credit, it's Bethany and Corey Maisel. There you go. And Thank they you. own and operate Avant Gardens. And I think what was so interesting about this couple is that she had worked as a produce buyer for Whole Foods in Denver. So she had been experienced with high-end organic purchasing and e-deliveries. So not only is the younger generation market savvy, but they also were born at a time when all they know is how to deal with people through computer screens. So yeah, the I, other thing that was interesting about them, as well as several other younger people, millennials for the most part, that I met in Youngstown, was that one reason they came back to Youngstown was because of low-cost housing. Right. Uh, the area had been decimated, as I believe I said last time, around 
because of the loss of the steel industry right. and deindustrialization in general, and has created a tremendous amount of vacant housing. And the city was being proactive by getting as many of these properties as possible in the hands of homeowners. So you could buy a house for fifteen or twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That was very attractive to this young couple who wanted to be farmers. So, and that was the case with many younger people that I ran into in in Youngstown. So you that synergy of people who want to come home, they want to be back in the areas where they grew up. They could actually come back to an affordable community, but one that had huge challenges, but they also saw the challenges as opportunities in terms of potential markets. That was the kind of wisdom I saw from younger people that, you know, I guess was a bit surprising to me. Yeah, it's very encouraging. And I think I mentioned this last week, and I want to mention this again, that if you're needing a dose of inspiration and feel good, this is the book to read, Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat and Changing the Economic Structures of These Communities. And last week, you gave me a number. I want to say it was $20 billion in financial generation, and that's just looking at farmers' markets. That was in terms of food production related to local food. You right. Know, so it's food that's being produced and sold in farmers' markets, farm-to-table restaurants, as well as more traditional retail outlets. So, And this is based on the research that was done by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The study's about three or four years old at this point, but and that represents a huge growth. Going back, they tracked it back to the early 90s when they found that that amount, the value of that locally produced food and that local food system was only about $400 million. So, you know, that's an astronomical, really exponential growth in that segment of our food system. And it's growing. It's definitely a growing area. People are looking, as we know, for local food. And how do you match that up with communities that are in need, such as Youngstown, and then aspiring young people who want to get into agriculture. There's some difficult areas to navigate, but people are finding their way. Mm -hmm. And I think having those numbers just reinforces how possible and how actually necessary this is to do. All right, we're halfway through. So let me remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Mark Winnie. He is the Senior Advisor to the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. He writes extensively. I am here with his latest book, Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat. It is a real education. It's sort of like a book of gems. These towns show us that there is a way out of economic despair, and it's through our food system. So what I want to do now is talk a little bit about another challenge that is facing two communities in particular that are in this book, and we would be remiss if we did not talk about climate change. But you put a lot of investment in a community, maybe you build new infrastructure, you've got your network set up, and then you have some sort of climate crisis, like a hurricane, for example, huge hailstorms coming more frequently, more rain, more drought. So I want to pull out two very distant cities. One is Sitka, Alaska, and the other is Jacksonville, Florida. And we talked a little bit about Sitka, but we did not touch on Jacksonville. 
I know Jacksonville back from my college days because I went to school in Tallahassee and I remember driving one weekend to an incredible seafood festival that Jacksonville had. And I thought, yeah, it's an industrial gritty town, but it also had this vibe around this food festival that was wonderful. And I was so happy to see it in the book. And you talk about people who are turning their lawns into food growing areas. You talk about aquaculture going on in Jacksonville, which I thought was interesting because they've got such great weather outside of hurricane disasters that you would think that there would be more local food production. So take us to Jacksonville and give us the highlights there. Yeah, it was an interesting city, one that I really got to know fairly well over the course of actually about three years of visiting on a fairly regular basis. And it's right up against the sea, of course, in northeast Florida. And the St. John's River runs right through it, uh, runs interestingly from south to north and empties out into the Atlantic Ocean, basically right through the middle of, in the heart of downtown Jacksonville. If you're a Florida aficionado, it's definitely not Miami Beach or Fort Lauderdale or even Orlando, but it has its own unique qualities and challenges. But I think a couple of things that resonated with me was when I met with a lot of the food entrepreneurs who had sprouted up all over the city and that listened to their stories, you know, the thing that they had been concentrating on was trying to produce and make and sell and cook really good food. And they've been working at it for a long time. And then when I say they, it's like all these, you know, everybody from distilleries to coffee roasters to a guy who is specializing in pickling products. And they would say to themselves, well, five years ago, we could say that this is pretty good for Jacksonville. But when they finally got it down, they could say, well, it's not just good for Jacksonville. It's now good anywhere. It's good in Atlanta. It would be good in New Orleans. So the quality was one of those challenges that they had to kind of keep pushing themselves to meet. And then gradually the demographics of the community changed. It became a little bit more of a a little more upscale, you might say, or there were more insurance headquarters starting to pop up. You know, I spent 25 years of my life in Hartford, Connecticut, which had always been the uh, insurance capital of America until recently. And then during the time I was in Jacksonville, they say, well, this was becoming the Hartford of the South, hmm. which I always thought was an interesting comparison, and yeah. they didn't even know I was from Hartford. Right. So that demand, there was a demand that began to be felt and responded to by these entrepreneurs. So that, again, reading market signals, being at the right place at the right time, but they struggled. I mean, the stories that these folks told me were like, you know, oh my God, you know, we're, we're just getting started and we're really got to think we're getting there. And all of a sudden, the Great Recession came along, 2008, 2009, and they were sucking wind and they finally got back into the saddle a year or two later. That's a great part of the story in Jacksonville. Yeah, but the other thing that is you suggested is just the fact that it's all water. I mean, every you there's bridges everywhere when you go through Jacksonville and around right. Jacksonville because there's so much water that you're not going to be able to get anywhere unless you have a bridge. And Hurricane Irma took out significant portions of Jacksonville. Um, the St. John's River just rose straight up and crested way over its banks, 
and took out whole neighborhoods, some of which are not going to be rebuilt anymore because they know it's going to happen again if they did rebuild. Right. So that, and I also came across a farm that was 10 miles away from Jacksonville, 10 miles from the ocean, beautiful farm called Conjuree and Penn. If you're ever in Jacksonville, I would highly recommend going to this farm. They told me that during the hurricane, their entire 200-acre field was covered six feet deep with water. Mm. And I looked around, and there was no pond or river or body of water anywhere in sight. And they said, well, it's just the water table. It's so close to the surface of the land that all the additional water rain from a hurricane, it just rises right up out of the ground. So it's water is everywhere, and it's a reality that, a lot of these cities are trying to face and what they're going to do about it in the future. And I'm, they're just beginning to grapple with it in a meaningful way now. But it, when you think about the food scene in Jacksonville and a lot of these other places, you have to take into account what some of the specific climactic challenges are, as well as the larger context of climate change. Right. The other issue that Jacksonville is grappling with, it is in the South, as well as Alexandria, Louisiana, is the race issue, another one that's right on everyone's radar right now. And so there are facets of racism in the food system. And working together is critical for us to have a resilient food system needed now more than ever. How are some of these communities working to alleviate the problems that are associated with racism in the food system? Well, Jacksonville has what's called the North Side, a very large neighborhood that is largely African-American. It's also the lowest income area, and it is one generally very large food desert and food swamp. Going through the North Side, you see almost no supermarkets, and you do see a lot of fast food places and a lot of convenience food places And that's recognized, and it's recognized as what it is, which is a a huge injustice. These are black people who are are in a neighborhood where access to good food is a rarity, and the cost of food that is there is exorbitantly high. So that's understood, and there's people are working on it. I mean, I think that's the good news. Their city hall recognizes it as an issue. One of the great people I spoke to in Jacksonville is a woman named Jacoby Pittman, who runs this great shelter and job training program, but is a real woman about town, who very powerful woman who was recently appointed to the city council of Jacksonville. She's from the north side, and she has a farm. She actually is operating a farm in the north side of several acres that's providing good, healthy produce to people there. But She's really trying to address these injustices head on by getting the city to commit and to fulfill promises that they made over the years to bringing some supermarkets and other healthy food to the north side. But you know, there was another feature to it as well that, that was more surprising. And I ha- you know, I'll have to confess my bias as a white person that you tend to see a city like Jacksonville and you see what is the emerging, exciting, sexy food scene that the typical higher-end restaurants, which are a lot of fun and great places to eat, but in the process, you ignore the fact that there was this whole African-American culinary world that existed only a few miles from downtown. 
And I was lucky to have a wonderful guide by the name of Chef Amadeus, who took me all around the north side, and I got to explore these fabulous restaurants, including barbecue shacks, that you know were representative of this great African-American tradition. And that itself was also an important economic engine in those communities. So Chef Amadeus would say, well, the white community tends to look at these places as the uh, hole-in-the-wall restaurants. I always refer to them as the hole-in-the-wall restaurants. Well, <laughs> that was just a, a disparaging way of dismissing a very large and significant and robust African-American cuisine that was a part of that community, a big part of that community, and often in many cases tied into communities of faith in, throughout, very much a part of the African-American tradition. So I was privilege to be able to explore that world a little bit during my time there. But you you saw it both as a separation, as something that divided the community of Jacksonville, but also something that had the potential to bring it together. Mm-hmm. Before we started our interview, you and I have had conversations about pulling the arts into the food world. And I think the one thing that can maybe I think food, of course, is the one thing or one of the important things that can bring people together and whittle away at some of our racist attitudes. But when we talk about art, when we talk about music, and we talk about storytelling, I have found that publications that talk about restaurants, yes, they may describe them as hole in the walls, which is unfortunate, but they elevate them and they bring them into the consciousness of other people. And so suddenly it's like, ooh, this is a restaurant I want to go to. And then maybe individuals of different races start mixing around the table where food is this great, not only economic driver, but hopefully a unifier. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the culinary arts, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's an extension of just another extension of who we are. It's another way of expressing ourselves. And of course, our cultural traditions have determined in many respects what that food is. It determines in many ways how we express each other, express ourselves. And I think the joy, the real exciting part for me, is finding out where all those different forms of expression, you know, where they meet, how do they come together, what can I learn from the African-American community, what can I learn to enjoy, and what can I share in return. So food is, you know, is another way to... Find your way into bringing community together through and also employing the arts as well. Mm -hmm. uh, one last reflection is uh, one restaurant that I went into in Jacksonville in the nor on the north side called Celestia's. It's a fantastic African-American seafood restaurant. And it was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, about 60 or 70 people there. I was the only white guy in the restaurant. And I, it felt like the movie or rather the TV show Cheers. You know, everybody <laughs> knows your name. Yeah. And I was, I felt like I was welcomed. I was there. I was part of that community. That, and there was one of the most fantastic blues singers I had ever heard singing in the middle of the restaurant the whole time that people are eating and food's being prepared and served and so forth. So it sort of brought it all together into this, into a nice, almost spiritual community. That's beautiful. Well, I have to close. We're out of time, unfortunately, but I want to thank you so much for being with me for a second week. 
In closing, I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank Mark Winnie, once again, author of this terrific book, Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat. It's inspirational and just what we need right now. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you.